if we keep on doing what we're doing with tropical forests, there will be no way for us to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius on global warming. Welcome to Radio Davos. We're still at COP26. We're still talking climate change. And in this episode, we're looking at the unbreakable link between climate change and nature. Conserving our forest and other critical ecosystems is indispensable, an indispensable piece of keeping our climate goals within reach. As world leaders agree to protect and restore forests, we'll hear how doing so can not only help fight climate change, but also create jobs. And we'll hear from the head of the United Nations Biodiversity Convention on a new plan for companies to measure and report their impact on nature. Half of global GDP is highly or moderately dependent on nature. And this is where then managing the risks and the impacts on nature comes in. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Reforestation still remains a very no-regret long-term solution. It is a cost-effective, most community-friendly, most climate-smart activity that the world can truly invest on. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, as we look at COP26, climate change, biodiversity and trees. Climate change and biodiversity are two sides of the same coin. And this is Radio Davos. In the six seconds since British Prime Minister Boris Johnson finished speaking there, an area of tropical rainforest the size of a football pitch has been destroyed. That's the rate of deforestation calculated by the World Resources Institute's Global Forest Watch, which also tells us that in 2020, the world lost an area of forest equivalent to the size of the entire United Kingdom. Forests provide habitats for nature, and they soak up and store carbon dioxide and provide many other benefits to humanity. So stopping deforestation is vital in our fight against the dual crises of climate change and biodiversity loss. In Glasgow, world leaders agreed to halt and reverse deforestation and land degradation by the end of this decade and pledged $19 billion in public and private funds. Among the countries to sign up were Brazil, Indonesia and Democratic Republic of Congo, which just those three account for 85% of the world's forests. In this episode of Radio Davos, we speak to a forester in Cameroon who's helping plant the Great Green Wall, reforesting a strip right across Africa on the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. We'll hear from a major cosmetic company on how businesses can make money from tropical forests without destroying them, and from the head of the UN's Biodiversity Convention, who's driving global efforts to protect nature, on a plan to get companies to report on the impact they're having on the natural world. But first, let's go inside the conference centre at COP26. This is Boris Johnson announcing the Glasgow leaders' declaration on forest and land use. 110 leaders have come together representing over 85% of the world's forest estate. They've made a landmark commitment to work together to halt and reverse deforestation and land degradation by 2030. Not just halt, but reverse. And that means more leaders than ever before have now signed up to protect our forests. Let's work together, not just to protect the forests, but also to ensure that the forests return. And this is President Joe Biden announcing the United States part of that deal. Conserving our forest and other critical ecosystems is indispensable, an indispensable piece of keeping our climate goals within reach, as well as many other key priorities that we have together. And today I'm announcing a new plan to conserve global forests, which will bring together a full range of U.S. government tools, 
diplomatic, financial, and policy to halt forest loss, restore critical carbon sinks, and improve land management. This plan is the first of its kind. Taking a whole-of-government approach and working, in our case, with Congress to deploy up to $9 billion in U.S. funding through 2030 to conserve and restore our forests and mobilize billions more from our partners. As part of this, we're going to work to ensure markets recognize the true economic value of natural carbon sinks and motivate governments, landowners, and stakeholders to prioritize conservation. It is this simple. Let's get to work. We can do this, and it'll have a generational impact. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your inspirational words. Inspirational words indeed, but as with any promises like this, the proof will be what happens beyond the conference centre and on the ground. To look at what is happening in the real world, we went to Africa, where people are planting a great green wall, a strip of forest right across the continent, to hold back the southern expansion of the Sahara Desert. Tabi Joda is an agroforester who leads the One Billion Trees for Africa initiative. Ahead of COP26, he spoke to my colleague Katrina Gordichuk. I went to school, I went to university, also partly with income that came from cutting down trees, selling firewood or selling timber, cheap timber. This is a challenge that affects almost every family in this region. So I felt very guilty when I came back from university that I was supported by money from degradation of the landscape. Why not I become part of the solution to restoring this landscape so that it can be a generational transition from the dormancy of cutting and leaving to degrade to reviving restoration and conservation. Reforestation still remains a very no-regret long-term solution. It is a cost-effective, most community-friendly, most climate-smart activity that the world can truly invest on. And what we are doing, what I have been leading in the last past years, we have seen critical milestones in restoration of hundreds of landscapes that have held a critical mass of vulnerable people from migrating across the Sahara, where they are often dying either in the Mediterranean or risking their lives. We have a holistic solution. And one of that is the restoration mission that I am championing. The Billion Trees for Africa for the Great Green Wall constitutes a huge opportunity for the global system to, to actually invest in. How can forests then create economic opportunities for people as well? Once we restore the lands, we create green growth opportunities and ecosystem services benefits that creates a holistic set of opportunities. And in these opportunities lies the potentials for jobs especially in the landscape, in the, in the restoration, where you see different forest services, products and practices creating demands and supply that necessitates different people participating in the process. Once we match these green growth opportunities and ecosystem services benefits, we create those huge microeconomic opportunities where lies the jobs and the incomes and the dignity. COP26, that's going to be a big conference. Are you personally, as an indigenous agri-forester, are you hoping or expecting anything to happen from that conference? The degradation in the Sahel in Africa 
also affect and are currently affecting Europe, affecting America, and people are migrating and people are driven by resource scarcity uh, or resource driven violence, it should send a strong signal to our friends and partners and families and brothers in Europe that it is not only a challenge on Africa. It is a contagion that will probably leave from Africa and, and, and become in Europe and become in America, as we already see the floods, the devastating communities. That is to tell you that when your neighbor's house is on fire, you have to participate in extinguishing that fire. Otherwise, the next one will be your house. So Africa is currently on fire. Europe, America, and the entire world should be behind us or should be with us in extinguishing this fire. Climate change is a huge risk multiplier, a risk driver that is affecting everyone. We've seen the floods in Europe in a very long time. We've seen the catastrophic destructions across the Sahel in Africa and in China and in Latin America and in Asia. All these should be the strong signals that remind our leaders that the COP should not be a talking talk shop. It should rather be a melting pot of new ideas and disruptive you know, conversations that would drive the new momentum that we need for action in limiting the catastrophic effects and impacts of climate change this time around. So I say, no more talk, listen to science, be more realistic, let the cop be the cop for the people, not the cop for the few. Tabi Joda, you can find more about his work at onebilliontreesforafrica.org. That's one spelt out, O-N-E. From Africa now to Latin America. You may or may not have heard of Natura. It's a cosmetics company founded in Brazil at the end of the 1960s, but you probably do know one or two of its brands, which include Avon and The Body Shop. Natura's Vice President for Sustainability, Marcelo Berra, told my colleague Alex Court how his company aimed to tap some of the riches of the Amazon jungle without cutting it down. Natura produces out of the Amazon bio-ingredients 300 million bars of soap each year. We, we build products in a way that really take into account the biodiversity and the connection that those products can have and should have with natural ingredients and with the, the forest as a whole. Can you give us an example of an ingredient you source directly from the Amazon? That is a tree in the Amazon called Ukuba. So the Ukuba tree used to be a tree that was cut down by the communities to be sold to produce broomsticks and roofs in the richest areas of Brazil. And the community would get around 10 reais per tree that was sold for its wood. Natura was already there sourcing castanha from that community and studied the Ukuba tree and its seeds and understood that the seed had a hydrating power that was even stronger than castanha. So the seed of Ukuba could be could become a new line of products and we could pay the communities three times more for half of the seeds that a tree would produce per year than what the, the community would get for the wood of the tree that would be sold to the wood industry. So when we proposed to buy the, the seeds instead of the tree, the community stopped to cut the tree down and started to plant new trees so they would get more money to sell more seeds and then, so the line was created. It was a big success with consumers. And at the end of the line, the, the communities as well, they were planting more and more instead of cutting down. I think that explains quite well what the, the mindset of producing sustainably 
represents for nature. Can you give us an idea of how you get those ingredients that grow deep in the jungle? It's important to state that it's not like they're living in a place where you have all ingredients available at their hands. So it takes weeks on boats to get where the products, uh, where the fruits come from. It's a, a, a very delicate and artisanal process that respects the cycle of nature. So it's super important for us to learn how to operate in that environment where you do not have everything you need available at all times. So you have to respect seasonality. You have to respect that this will be available and sometimes won't be available. And to learn how to do things that will allow those societies to flourish on their own way. So to create uh, ways for them to get better health, better education and better connectivity as well. So they can stay on their communities because they choose to do so and not because they they were born there and that's the only option that they had in life. We operate close to Belém, which is a capital in the Amazon region. And that's where we produce in a uh, what we call the eco park. So it's an industrial facility with the ultimate sustainable capacities. That's where the fruits and the, the seeds of the forest are taken to, and the, the value is added by transforming them into bars and soap. Do you think the pandemic has taught us any lessons that we can now apply to climate change and biodiversity loss? We live in a moment where we have a decision to make if we want to, to bring the planet to many generations or if we just want to keep on living and denying that there is a problem going on. I think we learned something really important in the last two years with COVID, which is very similar. So we had this problem that was invisible and suddenly it became not only totally visible, but it created many losses. And I, I speak from uh, a region that has suffered a lot with the, 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 the pandemic, and it allowed us to create solutions that would take us into a different direction on record time. So we vaccines that would take 10 to 15 years were developed in two years. I think that's probably what we should be thinking when we talk about the climate crisis and the nature loss crisis. And those crises are totally connected. So the climate crisis is created by our capacity to expand consumption and to expand our way of living in a way that does not respect the planet boundaries. So we, we and we are seeing already the results of it with floods, fires. So our capacity to change that is totally connected to our capacity to regenerate the economy and to do things on a different way. How important is COP26 to you? Nature & Co. will be in Glasgow, uh, for sure, and will be in different formats, in different panels, with one message uh, to bring to COP, which is we should get the Amazon in the Paris Agreement. So taking seriously the question of the laws of nature and how that impacts the whole carbon agreement. When we hear things like we should take care of coal, and cars and cash, we think actually what we should be doing would be taking care of people, nature, and then coals and cars and cash. It's super important to restate the order of things 
There is a lot of discussions on the carbon market. They are super important, but they should really take into account where the planet is and how the planet boundaries are placed. And one of the biggest boundaries that we have is our capacity to remove carbon. And tropical forests are the biggest uh, carbon removals on the planet. And we are not taking that discussion as serious as we should. If we keep on doing what we're doing with tropical forests, there will be no way for us to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius on global warming. There is the need to reverse the tipping point that the Amazon is reaching, and the Amazon is about to reach a tipping point where nothing will be able to do after that. So it's time to act now. Marcelo Bejar, Vice President for Sustainability at the cosmetics maker Natura, speaking to Alex Court. You're listening to Radio Davos from COP26 in Glasgow. And on these episodes, we're giving companies a chance to give their 60-second vision for climate change to tell us in a one-minute soundbite where they stand on the issue or where they see a solution. This is Kira Witten, Vice President of Marketing, Communications and Sustainability at the multinational electronics manufacturer Flex. As an industry, manufacturing has a huge opportunity and responsibility to play a strong role in helping address environmental issues, including climate change. Saving the climate requires industry-level collaboration. One of the most impactful changes we, as a collective industry, can make is to prioritize alignment and disclosure. This means ensuring that your organization is helping to tackle environmental issues by aligning with global initiatives and frameworks. At Flex, which is a global diversified manufacturer, we joined the Science-Based Targets Initiative to help guide us in deciding greenhouse gas emission reduction targets as outlined in the Paris Agreement. We also focus our efforts to advance the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the UN Global Compact, as well as disclose our activities against the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board and GRI standards. It's through alignment with global initiatives that our industry can demonstrate its commitment to combating climate change and organizations can show their stakeholders that they're in it for the long haul. Kira Witten of Flex. You're listening to Radio Davos from COP26, which, as we all know by now, is the 26th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But did you know there is another UN environmental treaty that also has its COPs? In fact, COP15 of the Convention on Biological Diversity recently happened in Kunming, China. Biodiversity loss, the destruction of nature, is often seen as the other environmental crisis, but it is very much entwined with climate change. Loss of biodiversity is at unprecedented rate in the history of humankind. That's Elizabeth Morema, Executive Secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity, telling me about the scale of the crisis. Before we hear her examples of how bad the crisis is, let me tell you what the five main causes are. Overexploitation of natural resources, pollution, urbanization, invasive species, and biggest of all in the list of five things wiping out plant and animal species, climate change. About one million species may be extinct by the end of this same century where we are in. That shows the magnitude. 66% of the marine of the ocean are polluted. 85% of the wetlands are being lost. 75% of the land is being degraded. 
So all these statistics are really scaring statistics. Scientists are telling us this is our last decade. We either make it or perish with it. And I don't think me and you want to perish and leave our children with nothing. In addition to her job as head of the Biodiversity Convention, Elizabeth Marema is also co-chair of something called the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. That group has just started drawing up a framework for companies to use to measure their impact on nature and eventually report that information publicly. As it happens, our previous guest on this episode, the cosmetics company Natura, is taking part in that work. So here again is Marcelo Behar of Natura. We do have good metrics for carbon. We know where carbon is going to, but we don't have so good metrics for biodiversity and for the laws of nature. So in order to get those in place, we are committed to help build science-based targets for biodiversity, using the Natura case and everything we have done for the last 20 years in the Amazon as part of that effort, but also contributing to build with the Task Force for Nature Disclosure, the TNFD. We are part of that initiative as well, and with many different forums, trying to build an agreement on nature. So we can have, in the same way that we had an agreement on carbon, we can understand where each country is performing and how companies are performing vis-a-vis nature laws. Elizabeth Marema told us more about the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Different businesses, especially when we look at agriculture, infrastructure, food and beverage, all these activities have an impact on nature or biodiversity. So basically, this task force intends to bring together these financial institutions, corporates, insurance, asset management, investments, to look at the risks from their activities on nature. So nature-related risks, how they can be effectively able to manage, measure their exposure to those risks, and the impacts of the activities on nature. Assuming they are able to do that, then to be able to manage and disclose or report on those risks. And this becomes even more important because recent studies clearly tells us half of the global GDP, exactly $44 trillion, actually is highly or moderately dependent on nature. So there's a lot of money there. And this is where then managing the risks and the impacts on nature comes in. So at the moment, companies disclose their financial accounts, the profit, the loss, their assets, their debts, etc. What you're putting together would be a way for them to disclose, to measure and then disclose the impact they're having on nature. I mean, how would that work? Many companies are not yet aware or knowledgeable of the impacts of their activities on nature. So actually, what this task force will do is to be able now to bring that information, to bring that knowledge, to enable companies then to take an informed decision. By doing so, and once they get that knowledge in a transparent manner, to be able now to manage the risks, to assess those risks. And once they are able to assess the risks on nature, will be also then what impacts the activities are on nature. As the result of those impacts, because of the economic value of the activities, what may they be losing as the result of not managing those risks? And how then can they manage those risks so that the impacts are less 
and yet continue to benefit from the opportunities that nature provides. Why would a company want to adopt these guidelines? Why would a company want to admit to the world, hey, we're doing this damage to nature? If it's voluntary, won't a company just not report any of these things? Why would they do it? The company themselves will do. Why am I saying so? The task force is composed of 30 to 35 members. Companies and financial institutions are seeing the benefits of their own engagement. One, two, the task force is market-led and we wanted the market themselves, the operators of the markets to be responsible for the development of the framework so that they can own it and be ready then to test it. And as you said, initially it will apply on a voluntary basis, just as for the climate financial disclosure was, but we hope over time then mandatory requirements can be imposed. And we see some countries have already put in place regulations pushing or urging companies to disclose their impacts on nature. What would you say to a skeptic who would say, this is a bunch of big businesses coming together, they know they're damaging the environment, and this is a way of seeming to be doing something about it. The accusation from a skeptic would be, isn't this part of a campaign of greenwashing? What I will basically say is, let us give them an opportunity in terms of time. One big pos- uh, positive from them is being ready to engage. And the fact that they are being ready to engage is also accepting that indeed they need to manage, to assess and manage their risks. So agreeing to do this, I think we need to give them benefit of doubt. What will happen once they've completed their work, the framework is in place, it has been tested, and how the voluntary application of the framework will be, and how long it will take to move from voluntary to mandatory application. So I think we give them benefit of doubt, but directions, the roadmap looks very positive in view of the fact that they are already on board and ready to engage. Now, there's already a task force looking at how companies can disclose their climate change related risks. So how does your work on biodiversity disclosure fit together with that? The task force on nature-related risk does not intend to reinvent the well. We are building upon and learning from the foundations from the task force on climate-related. So we don't want to duplicate. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. Even our governance structure has borrowed heavily also from the task force on uh, climate-related financial disclosure. And we hope By the time we produce our framework after two years in 2023, then the two frameworks will be complementary to each other because we don't want also companies to feel overwhelmed by too many frameworks. So how confident are you that the work you're doing in the task force on nature-related financial disclosures will actually have an impact on the biodiversity crisis? Whether can happen soon is question mark. But whether can happen, I can say I'm confident because this biodiversity, this nature is for us all. It's not just for those companies. It's for me and you and our children and families. So if we take that into context, 
all of us have an interest to ensure that we are all living in this clean nature uh, environment. One, two, the fact that now we are having the financial institutions and corporates engaged in the work of the task force on nature related also gives me that hope of seeing the shift of financial flows from nature negative outcomes to nature positive outcomes over time. Elizabeth Morema, the Executive Secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity. You can find out more about her task force at tnfd.global. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode, please find us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. You're very welcome and join the discussion about our podcasts or any other podcasts you feel strongly about. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review there. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Katrina Gordichuk and Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back with more from COP26 in a few days' time, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.